Yeah, so great, huh? Thank you, Susan. Really a powerful story of God, Susan being available and having things in her heart about that, that, man, there needs to be change and God bringing her into a place of being the answer in a way that couldn't happen apart from God showing up and doing that. And there's been a theme today already. Brendan mentioned it. Susan's story entails this of winning. Winning. We all are wired to win and to want to win. I didn't turn on the football game last night until the fourth quarter, but when Will Howard broke free for a 20-yard touchdown run at the end, like all of K-State Nation is like, yeah, we scored a touchdown. I mean, they already just like, you know, we had the game in hand, but now like we're really winning. And there's just something in us. You know, there are a couple people in the room that had a part on that team, but most of us, it's just really vicarious. Like, yeah, we are winning. And really, you know, it's not us, but we have such a desire to be part of a winning team. And that's a God-given thing. And today we're talking about some, a, a, a team that usually is considered not to be a winning team. And that's the church. But we're looking at how the church wins in history. This is one of our kind of favorite phrases around here. We call it one of our distinctives. The idea that the church, the people of God, are God's agent to bring his victory into the world. In the same way that like Susan was able to make a difference in, in changing policies and laws that, that actually made a difference in people's lives in a very real way. That's what the church is all about. We are the people God has called to be in the earth to change, to change things. And, and there's, there's a tendency, and it's been very pronounced if you, if you study history, if you study church history, um, in the last, since the middle of the 1800s, there's been a way of thinking that has infected the church that really, there were a lot of negative ideas that came into, into the religious sphere in the middle of the 1800s, a lot of false religions, and I believe this was one of them. And it's this whole view of history and end times and the church's place that is a theology of pessimism and defeat. It's the idea that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's easy to look at the world and think that that's true. But that the whole arc of history is that the world is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's basically falling apart. And when it gets really, really, really bad, then God's going to eject his people out of the planet. And then he'll judge all the badness, and then he'll come and, and set up his kingdom. And I believe that is a story that does not follow the arc of Scripture at all. It is a story that is very, you know, it's very easy. You always like, oh, Putin's the Antichrist, or, you know, whatever, like, latest world events. It's always easy to, like, oh, this is Revelation 8, and this is, you know, the locust, or... The cobra helicopters or something. I mean, we're like all these like crazy ideas, but it's all in this vein of like, man, the world is falling apart. And it so easily falls into this escapism where the whole goal of being a Christian is to hang on till the rapture and then just hope we get out of here because it's just so bad. And I just, it is so just dastardly because that keeps us. The question is, are we called to escape from the corruption of the world, 
Or is the church called to bring transformation to the world? I'm here to tell you the church is called to bring transformation to the world. And if we believe that it's just getting worse and there's nothing we can do, and that's really God's will, then guess what? That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is the very thing that will happen. And guess what? That's a lot that's ha- happened in, in our nation, in the religious sphere. But when we understand the commission God has given us and rise up into that, it's amazing what God will do. Story after story, like Susan's story, of how God uses his people to bring transformation. In the, Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He, he lived in the 1800s. And he, he voiced the understanding of this that has been the normal understanding throughout the history of the church. And I love how he, he said this. He said, I myself believe that King Jesus will reign and the idols be utterly abolished. I expect the same power which turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. The same power that turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. If you look at history, that's what happened in the the early church, which was just a minority, marginalized, tiny group of people, but they understood their calling to bring the kingdom of God into the world. And the Roman Empire was turned upside down within a few hundred years. Throughout history, where the gospel has gone, it has transformed nations. It has brought freedom. It's ended slavery. It's lifted women. It's brought political freedom. It's brought medical care. We could go on and on. It's, it's reduced. It's ended war. It's, it's changed things. That's, that's what the church is called to do. He says, Charles Spurgeon says, it goes on, the Holy Spirit would never suffer the imputation, the disgrace to rest upon his holy name, that he was not able to convert the world. Christ will have the whole earth. There it is, man. Go, Charles Spurgeon. No wonder he's the Prince of Preachers. He says it really well. But there's the conversion. We're talking about conversion story and how following Jesus, it's, it's not just being nice. It's not just this like incremental self-improvement, but it's a story of God's miraculous power coming and changing lives, converting us from one substance to another. And this conversion story, we talked last week about healing. There's a miraculous dimension to that. But it's not only individuals, but it's all of creation. God is converting all of the world through his agent, the church. And this, you know, I, I start talking about this, and I just want to, like, talk about 50 scriptures because it's so, like, powerful all throughout scripture. But I'm resisting the, the temptation, so we're just going to talk about 45. No, just joking. Um, we're going to look at a couple key ones. Um, just to set it all off, just from the very beginning of creation, we see that God's plan to extend his, his kingdom in the earth through people is in the first chapter of Genesis, when God first made man and woman. In Genesis 1.26, reading in the, the New Living Translation, then God said, let us make human beings, let us make mankind in our image to be like us. Okay, so think about it. God, the Trinity, speaking, hey, I'm making mankind to be like us. Okay, God, the ruler, the king, there are aspects of him that he's making us to be like. They will reign. Wow. You know, God reigns, but earth is the place where God has commissioned people to reign. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, 
all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In case you thought it was just the other sex. No, it's male and female. Together. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God always had a purpose for mankind to reign on the earth. And we see here, it's speaking about the created order, talking about animals, and I think it's kind of cool. We got a couple of vet students in the room. We got at least one pre-vet student in the room. I, I was talking to Macy this morning about how it's going. She's like, man, it's hard. Like, I have to learn, I'm memorizing all the muscles of a dog, and there are a lot. But there's like, she's filling this, this creation mandate, that's what this is called, to like, to care for the creation. And that's true in, in, the, in that dimension of, of animals and agronomy, but it's every area of the world. We could talk about mining, we could talk about economics, business, art, culture, government, all of creation. God says, hey, I'm, I'm the king, but I've delegated you to be little kings under my rule to bring my kingdom into the earth. Now, most of us know the story that very quickly, the first man and woman fell short of that, that calling. And they, they came under the power of another ruler. And who was trying to rule the, the creation? Through them. Because the spiritual beings, the way it's set up, earth has to be ruled through people. It's, that's the way God set it up. And so, but then we, God comes through all throughout the Old Testament. There's these prophetic messages that God sends that, hey, I am going to restore this. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a king who's going to be the man who will help restore mankind back to their proper place of rulership in the creation. And there are passage after passage about this in the Old Testament. I just want to read um, one of those. And it's, it's, we've got kind of two main scriptures today. This is one of them. This is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 I think you can make a case is the most important chapter in the Old Testament because it's the chapter that is referenced the most by the New Testament writers. Psalm 110 is quoted at least 26 times or referenced 26 times in the New Testament, far and away above any other chapter. And it's one that's, that's not as well known to us, but it, it shows this message of the church wins in history. And so I just, we're going to read through the, the first half of this. Psalm 110. Where's my Bible? We'll just read it up here. The Lord says to my Lord. So this is, David is writing this psalm. He's a king. He's, a, he's one of the best pictures we have of a prototype of, of, a, of a king, of someone ruling and reigning the way we're all called to in the Old Testament, although very flawed as well. But he has this high-level vision. He's seen in the heavenly dimension, and he's seen way in the future after Jesus the Messiah comes and comes and does his work on the earth, teaching, dying, being raised again. And then this is the moment of his ascension when he returns back and is coronated as the king of kings in heaven. And so the Lord says to my Lord, so it's the Father says to Jesus, the Son, the Lord says to my Lord, sit 
at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Okay, what's, what's going on here? What's he talking about? Well, let's break it down a little bit. First of all, the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we know right now, where is Jesus? He is, what did you say? At the right hand of the Father, yes. That was good. I wasn't questioning. I, thought, I just couldn't quite hear it. I'm sure it was good. Um, yeah, he's coronated at the right hand of the Father, on his throne, sitting, ruling, and reigning, accomplishing his purpose. And, but the Father says, sit until. So there's going to be a time where Jesus gets up and comes back to earth. To, this is going to be the second judgment, and the time when creation is totally remade, and new creation comes fully. But this psalm tells us that he is sitting there until certain things happen. And what has to happen? All of his enemies have to be made a footstool for his feet. So a lot of us are going, man, the enemies are out of control. Jesus must be coming back soon. But actually the Bible says, no, man, the enemies are not a footstool yet. So there's work to be done still. There's work to be done. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. So scepter, that's the rod, the, author, the rod of authority that the king would have. And what is that? What's it it's saying here? Well, Zion, Zion in the Old Testament was the mountain that the temple was built on in Jerusalem. And so it's the place where God's presence comes to the earth, the temple of God. We know now, since Jesus, that the church is the temple of God. We are the temple of God. So it's saying, again, I am extending my scepter into the earth through the church, through people. A lot of us are hoping for Jesus to just, like, fix everything. And he has, and he is, and he does. But the catch is that he's, he's chosen to use people as his rod of authority to rule and reign through. So sit, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then I love that your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Man, people who get this, people who understand this is like, oh my goodness. My life, it's not just about my like, career or becoming a popular influencer or whatever it is. Like, there is a, a high calling upon my life to be a part of this ultimate mission of God in converting the world. And when we get that, there's a response to volunteer freely in the day of his power, which is what makes it happen. This, um, this passage, as I said, is referenced over and over and over again in the New Testament. One example of that is 1 Corinthians 16, 25, which is all about the resurrection. And in that one, it says, he must reign, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his foot, under his feet. There is direct reference. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Okay, we're not there yet. Death's not abolished yet. So he is reigning until. How is he reigning? Through his church. This gives new um, 
new oomph to the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, where Jesus came to his disciples right before he ascended. And he said, all authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Not to the Antichrist, not to the world, not to whoever. All authority is given to me. Go, therefore, and you make disciples of all nations. So I have all authority, and I'm commissioning you in my authority to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Wow, there's that commission. And I think it's this understanding helps us to see it at a higher level that even the call to, when it says, disciple the nations, make disciples of all nations. We oftentimes think of it as make disciples from among the nations or out of the nations. But actually, that's not what it says. It says disciple the nations. Make disciples of the nations. So it's not only individuals who are called to disciple, but it's the nations of the earth who are called to disciple. How many of you are like, wait, you picked the wrong person. <laughs> like, this thing's way too big for me. This is, how am I supposed to be part of that? But that's the incredible, like, we were born for this. Not individually, but together as a church to disciple the nations. This is the, the meta-narrative we find ourselves in. This is the, the story of history that God has, has invited us to be part of. We've got a little picture here that kind of shows that. Um, but the beginning is the creation mandate. When God created the earth, perfect, and commissioned us to rule and reign it. But then at the fall, beep, steep loss of where we were called to be. And then throughout the Old Testament, it's the people like struggling and futility, futility, and more futility, but yet God bringing promise of restoration. And then when the Messiah came, he said, my kingdom is at hand. And he, he brought his kingdom into the earth. And ever since his, his first coming and resurrection, if you look at the story of history, God's kingdom has been growing in history through the church until that point where we will, the job will be done and Jesus will come back. And at least the, job, the part of the job he's given us will be done and he'll come back and complete it. Now how much, you know, what exactly is going to be done, what's not done, I don't know. You know, I, there's, there's, we know there still will be enemies with us in some capacity till the end. But um, we also know that, we're, that we are the scepter that's called to drive back those enemies and disciple the nations. And I know Jesus, is, God's a lot, like, a lot like my dad. Not, you know, not completely. My dad's, you know, but whatever, if, when my dad gave, my dad likes giving jobs to his kids. And when he would say, hey, I want you to mow the lawn today before I come home from work, it would have been the wrong response to be like, hmm, I wonder, maybe he won't come back today. Or maybe he'll come back early, and then I won't have to mow the lawn. That would be insane. That would be like, that wouldn't go well. But it's more like, no, when dad comes back, the job had better be done. And that's how it is with us. In fact, he's like waiting for the job to be done for, for him to, to come back. All right. Um, you know, it, it is amazing. When you look at, at history, like how much, 
has, the world is a different world that we live in today because people have understood this. People have brought the life of Jesus into the world in so many areas that we, we live in the benefit of and don't even know. But I want to um, look at, okay, what, how, do, how does this actually happen? How does this actually happen? Another saying we like to say around here is that Christians go to heaven, maybe, because it depends on what your definition of Christian is, but it's another story. Christians go to heaven, disciples change the world. Too often we've, made, we've changed the, the message to be about, hey, what's, what's the bare minimum you need to do to go to heaven? When really it's about, hey, how can I be a disciple who changes the world? It is the difference between people who are part of the church that wins in history is it's people who are disciples. And disciple is the normal description of a believer in God. In the New Testament, the word uh, Christian is used three times. And it was typically not what people called themselves is what other people called them. Like, wow, they're like little Christ. They're like the Jesus guy. They're, wow, they're different. What are they doing? But um, the word disciple is used 261 times to describe the followers of Jesus. That is the normal paradigm of what it means to believe in Jesus. The disciple is one, and that's different connotations. That's more like martial arts, where you've got the master, and you're, you're training. Your disciple literally means a disciplined learner, someone who is learner, a learner and wholly devoted to their master and to learning and growing and carrying out the mission they've been given. And so Christians go to heaven, disciples change the world. I've got, I want to end with um, a story I just, I read this week as I was reading the Bible in, in 1 Kings. It's the story of when Elijah, the prophet Elijah called Elisha, young man, the younger man Elisha, to be his successor. And I think this, this story really just shows the, the questions we got we, to ask ourselves of, okay, am, what, am I a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple who can help convert the world? And where am I at? Do I have the characteristics that a disciple has? So I just want to read this short three verses story, and then we're going to, we're going to look at these three questions. First, First Kings 19, 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with, plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And this sounds like something from like Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Like here comes the prophet. The guy's just like plowing and then he like takes his cloak and puts it on him. And that was understood like, oh, this something significant is happening. Like this man of God who was known in the whole nation just showed up. And he took his cloak, which is the representative of his anointing and his authority, and he put it on this young man. And so it was understood that he was inviting him to come be his disciple and for him to take what he had and to pass it on to Elisha. To Elisha. So what's his response? It says, Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them 
and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Okay? Interesting story. What the heck does this have to do with the church wins in history? Well, I think Elisha's a great picture of a disciple right here. This is very similar to the story of when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John in, in a lot of ways. The first question that Elisha demonstrates as he answers well is the question of, are you all in? Are you all in? A lot of times there's this desire or tendency to try to get the benefits of Christianity without being all in. And that just doesn't work. That's like trying to play football halfway. Uh, it, it just don't play. It, it's miserable. You're going to get destroyed. It's not fun. You, following Jesus, is, it's got to be an all-in proposition. That's what baptism represents. It's like going under the water, like every part of me, death to my old life, and coming up new. Are you all in? To be part of the church starts with being an all-in disciple who, who dies to their old self, not just once, but daily. And says, you know what? It's not my life. My life is for my master. I'm all in for him. There's such a like, message in our culture of inclusivity and niceness. And it's kind of like, hey, like, what can, how can we just include everybody? And you don't have to, with the, with the least amount of changing, just how can we just be big tent and everybody's part of this? And but that, you know, Jesse even told me, we're talking about football a lot today for some reason, but Jesse's coaching middle, helping coach middle school f- football team. He's like, even this inclusivity, it's infected football. Like, there's the schools, and the parents have this idea of like, well, we just need to have a space for everybody on the football team. And it doesn't matter if you're very good, but you need to get playing time. And it's like, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> you're going to get destroyed. <laughs> you know, this is not a place. Like, there are places for inclusion for everybody, but it's not on the football team and on the field. You know, there's, there's a thing of, like, you've got to be all in, and there's got to be something in you to be in that place. And it's the, the same thing of being part of a church that changes the world. Um, it's, it's all in. Um, are you all in? My, a lot of you know my son, Cade, is, just moved to Southeast Asia several months ago, a handful of months ago. And he is he's learning a language, the first language he's got to learn. He's got to learn another language. Because he has a very direct, distinct call from God to go bring the gospel to a group of people that, where there is no church. And we were having a conversation last week, and he said, Dad, I just, I think, you know, we've sort of, this is understood between us, but someone was asking me recently, like, hey, how do your, how do your parents feel about you going to this place that's in, like, the top five most dangerous countries in the world where Americans shouldn't go, there's war going on, and, and I said, well... You know, maybe it's good that your, your mom passed away. It makes it a little easier. But, but she would be the same, actually, ultimately the same place I'm at. That, man, it's been 2,000 years, and the gospel hasn't gotten there. Like, when is it going to be time? When is it going to be time for someone to get there? Like it's, never, like, it's never the right time where things just kind of fall into a place. And every, everywhere where the gospel has come, pretty much, it's been people that have risked their lives and died. Many people died to resist the evil that was in those places to bring God's kingdom. 
And so I was like, hey, well, it's, it's time right now. I'm OK if you die. And Kate's like, all right. I thought we were on the same page, but that's, I love that. That's great. Good final conversation we just had. <laughs> Are you all in? Number two, second question. Is your brain being washed? Is your brain being washed? People often say, man, you're just a Christian. You're just getting brainwashed. I say, well, my brain needed to get washed. And the reality is everyone's getting brainwashed by a bunch of crap, actually. Like there is the, the culture we live in. If you, if you grew up in communist China, you would, you know, if we were thinking about people from, from that nation, we'd go, you know, there's a little bit of propaganda that's affected people's worldview. And, you know, we shouldn't trust the media. We shouldn't trust the government. But we don't realize that there's, there are ideas and spiritual forces that have so infiltrated our culture and the way we think that we, all of us naturally think in many ways that is different from how God wants us to think. And we need to get our brains washed. Um, you know, there's just, I was at a, at a meeting this week with a lot of business and political leaders in Manhattan and the new vice president of K-State um, for diversity and inclusion was there. And she gave a talk, and I was like, you know, this is, I like you. And what you're saying is so, like, sounds so nice, but it's actually a bunch of hell. Like, it's so, like, deceptive. Like, it all sounds, like, so affirming and inclusive of everybody. And, but it is difficult. Like, it's hard to be able to even put your finger on what's wrong with it. But it actually is a mindset and a worldview that is totally destructive of people's lives and totally contrary to the goodness and, and God's ways. But it's like it takes, it takes training. It takes washing our brains with God's word to be able to understand. So we can't, we can't bring change around us until we've been changed ourselves, and unless we're being changed ourselves. And so we've got to have our brain being washed. We, you know, as, as a disciple, it means getting in the word all the time. It means like taking this Bible is like, man, I need to read this cover to cover and then do it again. I need to spend time on a daily basis getting in the word, changing my thinking. I need to let God wash my brain. And, you know, that's, that's the starting point to begin to have answers then for the world around us. I was just thinking about just like, man, there's so many places where we've been infected by bad ideas. I just for, just for grins and giggles, I wrote down a few of some of the ideas that are so prevalent that are easy for us to, to think, but they're examples of where, well, if I think like this, actually my brain needs to be washed. So let me just go through this for fun. Here's stuff you hear all the time. That's your truth. People are basically good. A good God wouldn't send people to hell. Christians shouldn't be political. Divorce is okay for irreconcilable differences. The pill has no risks or downsides. It's the government's responsibility to educate the next generation. Printing money not backed by gold or some other real asset stimulates the economy. Trust the science. Just follow the CDC's recommended vaccine schedule. They're the experts. Renewable energy is clean and helps climate change. And I didn't know Manhattan has an election in November. 
Those are just a few I had for fun. There's so many like places, that, but I, might, I want us to see that, man, how we think about not just the so-called spiritual things, but every area of life. Medicine, politics, God wants to bring change, and we need, we need to change. When Elijah called Elisha, there was what was called the school of the prophets back then, and it was understood that if you were going to, there was actually, there were the official prophets, like the king at the time had 400 prophets who all prophesied what he wanted them to hear, and he was an incredibly corrupt king, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel was incredibly wicked, and they had 400 prophets of God who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And that's like the world we swim in, all the ideas, all the ideologies, all the stuff out there. Like there's so much of just like the official perspective. But then there was a, the legit school of the prophets with the minority people. That they, were, they were teaching people, no, this is, this is scripture. This is God's word. This is how you hear God's voice. This is how you speak God's word. And that was what Elijah was calling Elisha into. And he was, he was getting his brain washed. Um, we, you know, as a church, we're very committed to this process. That's why, you know, we try to help people learn how to get in the Bible every day. We've got our kingdom living resources, our community groups. Um, I do want to give a plug for the Worldview for World Changers discussion group that we're going to kick off, not this week, but next week. It's going to be Tuesday nights at my house, 6.30. And it's just going to be like, come, you're going to have like a little something to read or watch every week and then come and discuss it, and we're going to be looking at cultural issues and how to think biblically. Um, so you just have to read that stuff and leave your cell phone at home. Um, those are the two requirements for the, for the class. I also want to just give a plug for this. Letter to the American Church, booked by Eric Metaxas. Um, very insightful take on, as from a guy who studied history at a high level and written biographies of, of, of world changers um, and seeing the parallels between evils in the past and what's going on in America and saying, okay, church, this is what we need to see. This is how we need to equip ourselves. This is a book. Um, it's a $20 book. You can get it on Amazon. We, or we'll give you $10 off if you buy it on our book table. So $10, Venmo, or in the bucket, um, First 10, go to someone if you'll read it. All right, letter to the American church. Eric Metaxas will help you wash your brain. Third question, how dirty will you get? How dirty will you get? Man, what's, what's that all about? Well, have you guys ever, has any of you ever butchered an animal? I see a couple of heads nodding. It is a messy, bloody, gory event. I saw a couple of pigs butchered when I was a kid. I was just amazed at how many gallons of blood seemed to come out of those things. And then a couple of years ago, I helped. I just did the second half of like cutting up a couple uh, sheep that had been butchered. And it was like, man, this took like two hours to get just a little bit of meat off these couple, sh couple sheep. It didn't help that it was January 1st. And we were in a barn with bad knives, and it was freezing cold. But that's another story. But I think of when I read this, but Elisha, he was all in. And as part of that, he was like, man, I'm, I'm taking the yoke of my oxen, and I'm burning that. Like, there's no going back to my old life. I'm, everything I have, I'm, I'm saying yes, I'm taking my yoke, I'm burning it, I'm taking my oxen, and I'm sacrificing them, and we're going to have a feast to, to mark 
This is like my baptism. This is me like coming in to answer the call of God. And then it says that he like, he prepared the meat and prepared the feast. It's like, man, that's a lot of work. That's just like a lot of work. It's like a nice idea to have a feast. It's like, let's have a party. Someone else prepare it, right? Because it's just, and he took the time and then the work to just like cut it up and deal with all of that. And we talk about changing the world. It sounds nice. But day in and day out, it's just really messy. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to raise kids to follow God. It's a lot of work to wash your brain. It's a lot of work to, to stand up to issues around us and to, to bring God's kingdom into the places he's called us to. I was talking to Jesse and Troy this week, and they're dealing with some stuff at the school where their kids go to, where there are things in the curriculum that are opposed to a Christian worldview. And so they're having these conversations with the school about, hey, can their kids opt out of some of this? And at first they said yes, but they said, well, actually, it's not just like a class, but it's kind of like woven into the whole curriculum, eight through three, like it's, so you can't really opt out. And so, like, okay, what do we do? You know, so they're wrestling with, okay, like, what, or, you know, how do we deal with this? Brings up questions like, how do we interact with the teachers, the administration, man, the school board? Maybe we need to send people to run for the school board. Maybe we need to get people to run for state legislature. Maybe, maybe we need to help with new schools or homeschool. I mean, it's just, but all those things, it's not, it's just so much easier to just go on living your life. But as we really, but it takes that sort of engagement to get messy and to work hard to see change come. So how, how dirty will you get? That's, man, it's a, it's a good calling though. It's a good calling. The, there's so many stories. You know, our, our own nation is, has the freedoms it has and the uniqueness it has because there were a group of people who said, you know what, we believe God's called us to be a city on a hill and to come to this new land and build a society based upon God's word. And that wasn't everybody, but that was an integral part of the foundation of this nation that has led to the most flourishing and peace the world has ever seen through people, but many of you know, that first group of pilgrims, half of them died the first year. They worked like we have no idea. But the results that come from that is world-changing. And so, you know, where, where is God calling you? I don't know. You know, maybe I'm hoping some things are rumbling today. Like, man, I know, man, this, this passion in my heart, that's a God thing, and I want to I wanna engage in that. Um, where's, where is he calling you to, to respond like a disciple, to be all in, to wash your brain, and to be willing to get dirty. But, man, as we do that, God is doing a really good thing. So um, let's, man, just today, I'm, I'm trusting the hope is arising. That God is, you know, the things that look like, man, this just feels like a hard day. But if we're having the, the attitude of, God, I'm giving you my day, I'm giving my life to bring your kingdom, then there is something so significant that's happening in that just day-to-day -day faithfulness of, of serving God and being a part of that. Um, let's, uh, worship team, can you come on up? We're going to worship God with one more song as we go out. Go ahead and stand up, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that 
the thing in our heart that wants to be part of the winning team, that's from you. And we'll thank you that your church is winning. Lord, we I just trust you today that you would bring encouragement wherever we're at, wherever each person's at. Pray for greater understanding and vision and clear next steps. And Lord, just thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being the scepter that you extend over the earth. We trust you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.